Welcome to Jimmy's Jobs of the Future, presented by me, Jimmy McLaughlin, a former Downing Street advisor on business and entrepreneurship. Thank you very much for tuning in to last week's episode where I reflected on a year anniversary in podcasting. We've had great feedback and it's been wonderful for so many of you to get in touch. If you do want to feed it back about the show, do drop us a line at hello at jobsofthefuture.co as we are planning currently for our fourth, fifth and sixth series of how we take this forward. Today, I'm joined by Henry DeZote and it's a little bit like our worlds have collided in some ways because Henry is a former special advisor, but he was one to Michael Gove in the Department for Education. You may have seen Henry before from your television screens. He fronted up a lot of the marketing campaigns for Look After My Bills, but also he first came to the nation's prominence on Dragon's Den, where he went in with a very bold pitch and the highest valuation that's ever been seen in the den. Jenny and Tosh, we have a deal. Right. Yes. Let's do it. Go on. Okay. Great. Hard negotiations. Well done. Thank you so much. Very well. They almost lost it, but having given away just 3% of the company, Will and Henry leave with £120,000 and two switched on dragons. <laughs> Henry, welcome to Jimmy's Jobs of the Future. What were your thoughts when you heard that? <laughs> I mean, in total honesty, Jimmy, I was the only thing I could think about was my nerves and trying to not, you know, excuse my French, but shit myself because it was it's an it is an absolutely terrifying experience walking at like the kind of the, the lift doors open and you kind of walk through and they're all sitting there and it's kind of like a bit of a walk to get to where you're meant to stand in, in front of them. I mean, it, you know, felt like a very long walk. It's obviously about 10 yards, but it felt like a very long Pen- walk. Penalty kick style. Exactly. And then you have to do your like intro for two and a half minutes, which me and my brilliant co-founder, Will, who's a, who, who uh, is a very old friend of mine, we were, we were, uh, we were up the night before kind of like rehearsing in front of the mirror till 3 a.m. trying to get trying to get all of that kind of kind of perfect uh, or to, you know as, 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 as much as we could um but it, it was it was uh yeah it was terrifying basically and, and did you think that genuinely because sometimes they go on the show and they you know look it's television right so like they they cut it in certain ways but did you think that you might almost be laughed out the room with that valuation to start off with because it's probably treble five times the average pitch that goes in there absolutely i mean i think that i think there was there was a kind of big risk that well, they all just told us to, to to do one and and quite quickly i think we got lucky because tej lavani one of the dragons quite early on made us an offer and you kind of felt as soon as that happened as soon as one dragon kind of broke the mold and made an offer you kind of felt the tension in the room kind of dissipate mm. well certainly for us anyway in the sense it was like well this can't go that badly wrong because we've at least had one offer and actually we were there's two two interesting things about the about the show first of all which is the lift is a fake lift. Um, I'm not sure if I'm meant to be saying that or allowed to say that, but it's a, you kind of, you, you press the button, uh, the doors open, you walk in, the doors close, and then the numbers at the top kind of make it look like you're moving to the sixth floor or whatever it is, one, two, three, four, five, but you're not going anywhere. And then the door just opens and you walk out. So it's a fake lift. And then you, we were in there filming for nearly three hours. Wow. So, and they film everything from like, like as soon as you walk through the door and some stuff in before you've gone into the lift, they film everything. Um, and it and and it's it's cut down in the show to mm. about twelve minutes. Um, but we were filming for two and three quarters of an hour, and and they and the dragons were kind of 
asking absolutely everything you could possibly imagine. So it was very surreal. When it was on the TV, it was quite surreal because you'd be watching it and obviously you're also watching it, how people react on Twitter and all that kind of stuff and everybody's kind of going, oh, these dragons are useless. They haven't asked any of these questions and they're idiots or whatever it is. And... I was like, I can promise you we got an absolute grilling uh, for a very, very long period of time. And they and but they were um, and they were extremely astute stuff about everything. And we got we ended up getting very, very lucky. And I, I think it helped that we had we had just raised some money. My my um, my co-founder, Will, uh, had done a brilliant job raising some money out in California because we'd got into a startup accelerator called Y Combinator out there. And. Uh, so we went into the den knowing we'd just raised money at a certain valuation and we couldn't go below that. Mm. So when we literally said to them, I'm really sorry, but we're just not going to go below. And you didn't see this because this, they didn't edit this because it's probably not very good TV. But there was a kind of discussion about how we were like, no, no, we're not going to dilute. We can't go below this valuation. This is not fair on these people who have just given us money. Yeah. Uh, and actually, you know, I think, I think uh, one of the dragons at the time said, you know, we respect that because that, you know, shows that you would protect us as much if we were investors as much as you would protect them. Yeah, your, your, your Batna position, effectively. Exactly. Right? Um, Batna is best alternative to a negotiated agreement. On, on how so? How quickly did Tage make you an offer then in that three-hour process? I would say he he went quite early actually. I think kind of like after about twenty minutes, um, okay. which was great. I think you know we were lucky because look after my bills was a was actually a kind of pivot. We'd be, we'd been doing a business. This the it was the same business, but we had a different proposition before uh, we moved to the look after my bills model, which is which was automatic switching for everybody year on year. But before that, it was called The Big Deal, and that was collective bargaining for consumers. And that itself as a business had actually made a little bit of money. Um, you know, we'd made like a million pounds of profit. So when we went into the den and said, we're doing this, oh, and we've made, we have made money before. It was a record. Exactly. They were, they were just a little bit more supportive of it all. And so talk us through that, because the, the big deal was was fascinating in terms of taking those skills from what you had got in government and moving them to kind of the private sector, but in a very different way. And it was effectively, to crudely explain it, it was like Groupon for energy customers, correct? That's exactly right. To be honest, it wasn't like a particularly new idea, I mean, which the the kind of consumer watchdog had done a similar thing for, for energy bills a couple of years before. And it was the idea of can you get lots of people together and then negotiate a deal on their behalf that they couldn't get on their own. Mm. And, you know, we, we felt it was we were trying to focus on markets that maybe weren't treating customers brilliantly. Um, and perhaps there was a kind of a, a bad guy in that scenario who was maybe not doing the kind of right thing. I mean, gosh, I mean, the energy markets, and we can we can talk about that later, but things things have kind of gone full circle very, very recently. But the, the idea was, so we didn't, you know, we, we had raised a very small amount of money right at the start, and we didn't have a kind of multi-million pound marketing budget or anything to do any, anything. So the idea was, can we do things? Can we campaign in the media? Can we pull people together in a kind of organic way to, to, to build? a business and that also involved kind of like getting you know trying to get politicians to be supportive of what we were doing and and we did stuff with the sun newspaper and we did stuff with with campaigning grassroots organizations to just try and draw people in but the truth was was that kind of like one-off deal getting stuff didn't ever actually it worked and we saved people we we did a you know we did a brilliant mass green switch where we got 30,000 people to go green and got a really brilliant green energy company to knock a few hundred quid or so off their bill and then we got you know all those people went green and that was fantastic 
But as a business, it never really, you know, it never quite took off in the sense that there wasn't there wasn't that kind of classic uh, startup hockey stick growth. And so we had to do the big pivot, and the and the big pivot was to move to look after my bills, to do it for our customers every year automatically. And when did that sort of scale moment come in in terms of the idea? Because you're right, it's a brilliant idea. You've clearly got traction, got people doing it, you're making good profits, but. When did you sort of decide to make that big pivot? Because that's quite hard, particularly when you've got a, a model that's proven and working. You know, it's perhaps easy in entrepreneur world when things aren't working to think, okay, we've got to pivot this, but you've got something that was working. How did that process happen? <laughs> well, uh, I think, um, I mean, look, Will and uh, I and the team ummed and awed about it for a very long period. And I think we'd kind of first thought of it fairly early um, and then never quite had the... We kind of always felt it was the right thing to do, but then never quite had the guts to kind of really go for it because it was a big deal to do that. And actually, it took us four years to get to look after my bills when the truth is we probably should have moved a lot quicker and a lot earlier. And I think one of our learnings is that when you know you've got to do it in your heart, you've kind of got to... You should, you should go for it. But you're right, it wasn't easy because we were making money and the team was doing well. In fact, we we started building Look After My Bills in 2017 and we made a brilliant hire, joined the team, a guy called Dan, who was absolutely superb. And he basically went off and built the Look After My Bills products. And we were still doing big deal things, like even before, like we launched Look After My Bills in January and we did a big uh, like switch with the big deal in in November, like literally Mm. two months before. So, And then we also, when we got into Y Combinator, you know, we'd only applied for Y Combinator with, with Look After My Bills in November and got in on the January. So everything kind of moved, having been very slow about it all, it suddenly all moved quite quickly. And we had to take our investors through that process as well because they were like, hold on a second, you want to blow up your old business model that has literally made you profits. You know, not every, not every startup makes money and you're you're doing that. Uh, we don't really understand why you're doing that. And then also, you know, why, you know, why are you going to Y Combinator and giving away, you know, a certain amount of your business for a not very high valuation. And so we had to take them on a kind of journey on all of that. And to be fair to them, they were hugely supportive, um, but it wasn't the most obvious thing to do necessarily. Um, so that was, it was, it was, a, it, the lesson was it took us too long. We should have moved faster, but we kind of got there in the end. Talk to us, like, explain Y Combinator to us because I I kind of get what it is but most of our listeners are in the UK although we did I was looking at the stats this week third highest is San Francisco city wise that's lived in so there'll be a fair few people that get it but I would love for you to kind of explain what Y Combinator is in your words so Y Combinator is a startup accelerator and what it does is it it invests a certain amount of money in a business, tends to be very, very early stage business, you know, potentially even pre-products or pre-revenue. And they get and they take a, so they'll invest a certain, I think it's now $150,000 and they'll take a certain percentage of your business. But they basically then provide you with support to grow and they also then connect you with all the very best investors in the West Coast and across the globe. I'm a massive, massive fan of YC. They are incredibly founder-friendly. They were there for us at some very, very key moments. Uh, and, and you know, like our, our partner at Y Combinator, you know, even now we're still in touch with and, you know, know that they're kind of supportive. And that community of Y Combinator is 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 the really huge thing. And you're being t- typically modest there about, about the community because talk us through some of the companies that have been through Y Combinator. 
Well, so, it's, I mean, so so uh, you know, they were they were the first money into kind of Airbnb, Dropbox, Coinbase. You know, they've done well. That's the casual fifty billion <laughs> name, name <laughs> well, dropping the valuations there. Yeah, and and it, and and it's and there's quite a few more that are coming through that are clearly. <laughs> clearly doing extremely well and and I think it's and you know what was very special about it for us and was that we got to move to San Francisco we were there for a few months actually I my 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 wife and I had a had a baby so I had to come back a bit early and my brilliant co-founder did did all the fundraising and stuff out there but it was just an incredible experience and I think it's it's a it's not that easy to get into it and it seems to be very kind of very popular now but I highly highly recommend it for 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 startups because you can't really that community, that kind of support, and also just going through it with, you know, I've made lifelong friends with with the other startups that were in my batch of, of people that, that joined there, that, that that did Y Combinator, uh, and we all support each other and still in touch, and and that's that's it. That's an incredible thing. So we were very very lucky to get in, and it really made a difference in terms of. Also, the other big thing about Y Combinators is, it makes you think really big it's like you know i think too often this maybe is a kind of british thing is that you don't necessarily think how how far can i take this like and it's like okay well it can be oh maybe this is a 50 million quid business and that's like exciting and then you know they're like hold on a second why isn't this a 50 billion quid business and you're like yeah okay <laughs> cripes okay yeah no but good idea and you know i had to slightly get over the kind of british mindset of you know um we're gonna you know we're gonna be the biggest thing in the world and the Amer- and, and american mindset is towards that and but i think that is actually incredibly refreshing and it's just about raising your horizons in terms of what what you can achieve and actually if you do that you you can you can do more and i think that's that is brilliant how do we get some more of that in the uk because i agree with you so you know went and did the accelerator at stanford university and it was similar you had to pitch in front of a room of 70 people on the opening day or idea and then you had to field questions for about an hour about it and basically just loads of people said to me you know your idea sounds great but you should check out this company i think there was a couple one was better up which now is where prince harry is at and another one was handshake and i checked out these companies like afterwards and saw that they they did have quite similar ideas and they were already on a series d kind of 70 80 million us dollars funding and i was just like wow the pace out here is just different level and so how how can we kind of change that cultural shift and the whole thing of what they did at stanford was that you know we are there to teach you how to build a billion dollar company and it was just like i mean it did make your brain break at points in terms of when you're trying to do that kind of modeling for these ideas um but how do we get more of that here in the uk as a general rule in in most things i feel like the uk is like a few years behind the US, you know, <laughs> it could be in, you know, culture or sport, or like all sorts of different things. And some things are obviously, we're obviously ahead of them. But I feel like we are, we're already catching up a lot with this. You know, I think the stats around venture capital money in, in Europe, stroke the UK, you know, showing that things are, things are moving in the right direction. And like the, there are more billion dollar unicorns coming out that are more, you know, European or, you know, even, you know, in other parts of the world as well. And, and that, that has accelerated. I also think there's some organizations that have also helped that happen a fair amount in the sense of you know i think the kind of closest equivalent to why combination that we've got over here is entrepreneur first mm-hmm. that, and you um you had alice on on the show and you know i think they are a fantastic accelerator and taking a different approach to yc so that you know they're, they're definitely not the same kind of thing but the idea that people can become founders and people can build these things if they are supported and also 
uh, connected with the right people to, to kind of do it, I think is, 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 is absolutely right. So I feel like we're moving in the right direction. I wouldn't want to... But how do we accelerate it? Well, I do, so the obvious, everybody always says, well, the government needs to do more or whatever it might be. I, I mean, I'm slightly less, <laughs> less keen on all of that um, in, the, in the sense that, I, you know, I think government has a, has a part to play. And I think, um, you know, there's no doubt that the EIS schemes that were introduced have done a huge amount, in, in particular kind of early stage startup stuff. I just, I th- there's probably some cultural stuff around, you know, being keen to like say to people that you can, you know, that that you can go for this kind of stuff and you can do it. And you don't have to take a, an, a a standard route of going into into certain professions or whatever it might look like and that you can you can go for it and be supported there. I mean, I think one of the things that I'm most excited about, and I think COVID has accelerated this, is the ability for anyone to really make money on the on the Internet. Um, and in a way that, you know, and, and that's why I love companies like Shopify and who are like empower people to go and do that. And it really is the case now that people, you know, some of my most successful friends literally just make money on the Internet by selling stuff on the Internet and running e-commerce stores and building SaaS software. And, you know, that stuff is much more normal now. And actually, I think it needs to be heralded. Uh, you know, for another one that I take a slightly contrarian view is that I think, if you're people who do influencer marketing are entrepreneurs themselves and should be heralded rather than, you know, I think sometimes people think influencers are slightly kind of like, you know, on Instagram taking shots on the beach and all of this kind of stuff. And, I, and, I, and, and yeah, some of it is, but also they're making money themselves. And that is something that we should herald rather than something that we should be worried about. Yeah, no, I, I mean, look, uh, we talked about this on the Ben and Noel uh, Gymshark episode where because they obviously built an entire business model effectively off social media influencers and, and started it 10 years ago, right? And, you know, seen the news about potential IPO valuations in the news in the last couple of weeks. Um, and they've been incredibly successful at it. It's interesting in terms of how you define that kind of entrepreneurial side of things. I'd like love to ask you questions about those kind of early days, which so fascinate me about startups and startups that go on to um, exit and be successful as well. What did you hire your first person to do? And then secondly, when did you think, oh, we've got something here? A couple of moments where when we basically, I was like having to hire customer service people hand over fist because we just couldn't. I mean, like we were all doing customer service. Me, Will, my, my co-founder and all the team were just like, because we were just growing. And it was suddenly it was like, right, I need six customer service people starting on Monday and I need another six starting on Wednesday. You know, it was like, it was that kind of like, oh, we probably have got product market fit. It was like, okay, it looks like it has, it has happened. Um that I think was an it was an exciting moment, uh, and I think it's worth noting that did not happen until you know six years in <laughs> since we launched the business. So it was a kind of you know quite a quite a slog there. I mean, our very first hire straight out the gate in 2014. He was a brilliant intern who then became a, like a researcher for us because we were kind of very campaign focused. So it was very researched. We then hired a kind of marketing guy and that, uh, a bit later on a brilliant, brilliant marketer who, who stayed with us through the whole way through. And, you know, at one point after we were, we, after we were hired, we were bought rather by Go Compare. We were spending a lot of money on digital marketing and that was, he went all the way through and did all of that brilliantly well. So one of the things that we, the approach we took with hiring, which I think is a little bit different from what other people do, was that we basically said everybody has to do customer service. 
And, you know, I was hiring marketing people and I said, no, you've got to do a month of customer service before you can join the marketing team. Really brilliant young people would do three to six months or maybe nine months doing customer service, really understanding the product on the front line. And then we would promote them out of those jobs into operational roles or product roles or communication roles in terms of like, you know, how we were communicating with our customers and things like that. So we had this kind of like homegrown team rather than bringing in lots of people from the outside. The team were, I mean, it was brilliant. They, I mean, my, my look after my team are absolutely fantastic. And it really meant that we were all kind of in it together. Other people take different approaches and want like big experts to bring to, to, to bring in, um, but we took a we took a different approach. Um, you make it sound like the customer service team is like a whips office, That's where, <laughs> where people go for training. We do get a lot of politicians that listen to the show, so that will get it. But it's often a, a training ground for people in that become government ministers is to do some time in the whips office first, understanding how how Parliament works. Well, I I, always, I, I just hope that our customer service team is not quite as aggressive as the whips <laughs> office. It's like slightly, uh, though I know all those stories are old hat these days. But oh, of course, you know, there's, there's no uh, there's no <laughs> blackmail or threatening anyway. But you are also being as well there like sort of typically modest about um kind of your achievements with it and look i appreciate that lamb didn't sell for sort of hundreds of millions and so on but you still went in with the highest valuation ever on dragon's den and that was still doubled so it's a, a huge success i mean one of the I, look, I love dragon's den as a show i think it's great and i got learned most of my kind of business and entrepreneurship in my early formative years from the show and i do wish it would actually expand a little bit more so that we could see how some of these companies get on, actually. I think it's one of the kind of slight failings of, of the show is that so often, you know, they you occasionally sort of once every three or four years get Evan Davis doing a kind of 40-minute show where he kind of goes through some of the companies and so on. What was the experience like after that that you, that you had with them, uh, with Tej and Jenny Campbell? Yeah, what, what were your experiences and learnings from that? And how can we, how can we improve that ecosystem more as well? So, uh, so both Ted and Jenny were superb. The, the, the thing that was amazing about those is they were always on the end of a phone for us, and particularly at that kind of early stage, I like like something would happen, and I'd pick up the phone to Jenny, and I'd be like, "What do you, you know, what do you think of this, or can you help me with this?" And they were always there for us, and that you can't ever underestimate the value of that. They were great with introductions, and they were also brilliant. You know, like it doesn't sound much, but like they both came into the office and like met the team and like with the team got to have photos with the team and um, with them rather. And that kind of stuff really, really makes a difference. Like, you know, it's like, oh, oh the, you know, and everybody was excited to meet them. And obviously we then took photos that were used in our Facebook ads and all of that kind of jazz, which was really brilliant content for the, you know, for the for the organic and paid channels and all of that. So all, all of that really, you know, it really helped. My basic view on Dragon's Den is that if you're a kind of B to C business where someone can someone can take the product while they're literally watching Dragon's Den, then I think going on and trying to get on the show is 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 definitely worthwhile doing because you learn a lot. And even if you don't necessarily get a deal, you you learn a lot. You get to be put in front of great investors, and you your product also gets to gets to be heard by a lot more people than it than it would have been if you, if you hadn't gone on. Um, so I'm I'm very pro. And on that, you, you're you're a very big proponent of um, going out and sort of uh, you know startups trying to raise money, and I think that is because it leads to lots of other sort of 
positive kind of follow-on effects, even when you get lots of no's and so on. So it'd be great to hear a bit about your kind of other fundraising journey because it's it's quite unconventional for a kind of VC-backed firm to be on Dragon's Den, becoming a bit more so. But it would be um, it would be really interesting to kind of um, get your your thoughts on that. Well, for, I, I should caveat it by saying I don't necessarily think all businesses should raise venture capital money. One of the things that I think is good and you're seeing you're seeing it becoming a bit more of a normal thing that actually you know there are some businesses that just raise a little bit of money and they don't you know the, the venture capital model is a model of you know you, let's say they have 100 companies that they invest in they need one or two of them to become billion dollar businesses you know become unicorns or maybe even a uh, you know 10 billion a decacorn and that's how they how, how they how they make their money and it is no it is actually of no it's not great for them for them to just do a kind of two x return on a on a few of the things like so so our so our investors for example so the the later ones like the very early ones made a lot of money and th- kind of thirty x on their investment on us but then the later ones like the dragons tripled their money they didn't they didn't they didn't do much for that and a and a venture capital fund to them that that kind of result is 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 actually of no use like it's not it's it's it, I mean, it doesn't really impact the uh, yeah exactly because they don't want someone to do that they want someone to 100x return um and i get that so th- so i think the point about uh, if you raise venture capital money is you've just got to be conscious of who who's giving you money and why they're giving you money uh, but i think one of the brilliant things is there's now a lot more options out there in terms of like going to family offices or going to angels and i think that the I, mean, I do a fair amount of angel investing now and um i think it's brilliant that there are just more opportunities of raising money where you don't necessarily have to you're not necessarily completely 100% on that kind of like we're going to be a billion dollar business or we're not going to do anything you know like that kind of track and i think that's important to have that um and if you are raising money you should just you need to think about like who who is giving you money and why they're doing it um, in the context of you as your business um, and what that means. But it tests it though, doesn't it, right? And that's the the kind of the interesting thing. So again, I completely agree. Not everyone should be venture capital backed and probably have sometimes too many people trying to chase that anyway. And actually there's a lot of respect that we should give to people that just build good, solid, profit-making businesses. Um, and... But I, I will give you an example, which I only just thought about, actually, as we've been talking. So when we were trying to get sort of partners and sponsors for this show, you were one of the people that I went to and said, will you back this? And your reply was like, and you kind of taught me through the business model. And as soon as you did it, I was just like, All right, like it is completely obvious that the, the CAC, the customer acquisition that you would get from this show at that point when we were starting out, would have been, I mean literally i think we would have needed every consumer to sign up about four or five times to even kind of <laughs> break even on what i was doing so it's like but it was a really good lesson for, for me in terms of just you know and actually trying to get a bit non-british about things and going and asking people for money and you know it's it's, it's a form of sales right and it's and well one of the things i've learned from this podcast is is Boy, everything in life is is sales to a certain degree, and it does teach you that. And I I know you push that a lot on Twitter, and I, I think it's a it's a really good point that we just don't visit enough. Yeah, I, well, I completely agree. I think, um, I think putting yourself out there, whether it's 
going to raise money, talking about what you're doing on Twitter, talking, go, you know, setting up a podcast, like going and talking to people about your business, applying for accelerators. Like even the process of applying for Y Combinator is like a help, you know, like actually like helps you work out what your business is and what you're trying to do. But putting yourself out there is not an easy thing to do. I think particularly, you know, for me as British, I've, I find it difficult and I'm I'm literally going to like, I'm going to preach what I don't do at this precise moment, which is thing, which is I don't I don't tweet enough, talk about what I'm doing enough, or try and get out there. But if you if you if you do and are willing to do that, you do just find that stuff will come to you and things will things will happen. You know, I've I've got friends who write blogs or write newsletters, and they just always say to me like, Henry, as soon as I started doing this stuff, like people, and it takes time, but people like it, it kind of adds its own benefit. And it and and I think the key thing with all of this is that. Often there are things like, you know, like your heroes, like many people whose heroes are literally on Twitter or on Instagram or stuff, and you can just go and DM them. Now, they might not reply, but they might reply. And I have literally DM'd people that I'd never thought would ever talk to me ever, and they actually replied, and I can't believe it. And the point is, is there are things that you might be scared of doing, but they have high upside and very low downside. And it's just always worth just going for it. I've always thought on that in terms of the cold outreach that there probably aren't that many cold outreach messages that aren't read. Like most people do sort of check their inboxes and do check their sort of Twitter DMs, but you know, maybe not regularly, maybe not that often and whatever, but they they do do it. And if you can do that, and again, it's a form, form of sales, right? Is that like initial hook and and so on is is so important to kind of to do that and and you know is a is a skill itself but one of the things i think is really interesting that you did and is talk back about that kind of moment of uh, leaving michael gove leaving the department for education and trying to work out what is next because i think you took a very interesting approach because so often we can look at people and think our oh, entrepreneurs have to be in a new sector or like completely new challenge and so on and in fact one of the best speeches on this is steve jobs commencement speech at stanford which is 100 percent worth watching for anyone that hasn't because he talks about all the different things he did in his life all the different failures that he had and how that all led to him kind of apple and all the stuff around design as well which i have found so interesting but your journey was similar to a degree in terms of um, taking the skills that you built up in the early part of your career in terms of that. And perhaps it's worth explaining slightly here that you there are lots of different types of special advisors. I mean, they kind of get lumped in by the media all as you know, one great big... Scumbags. Sh- yeah, exactly. <laughs> Cabal, shadowy operators that we are. And, um, and actually, like yours was a lot of like um, media and campaign focusing as well. And so you, you took those skills to find the big deal. Yeah, well, th- th- that was the, that was the aim was, I, I, I kind of, you know, I could, so I, before I went into government, I did work for a, a kind of a public affairs and communications business. And, uh, you know, one of the things that quite a lot of SPADs do when they leave government is to kind of go off and do all of that. And that's a very natural skill set. And, and some people are absolutely brilliant at it. But I kind of wanted to try and take a slightly different approach um, and see if I could, 
use those kind of campaigning skills uh, to like make us make a startup work but I also like I, I should say a lot of this was like trial and error because you know one of the things one of the things that for a lot so I so I, I did start off doing education policy in think tanks and I that ended up in the in the department for education doing doing it doing ed- education stuff and actually for a very long time in my life I thought I wanted to be a, a teacher and I'd always thought well, since I was about 16 17 I thought oh I'm gonna I'm gonna be a teacher but I'm not gonna do it straight away and I'll do it later on in life so, so at the end of kind of being a spad in the department for education I thought okay well I'm, I'm gonna be a teacher spoke to like so I'd obviously had made a lot of contacts with people who are teachers <laughs> having worked in the department for education and I spoke to the, the very best ones and said what do you think and they basically said you should just go and sit in a school for a week and you will know within a week whether you whether you want to do it or not. So I was like, okay, seems a bit odd, you know. Okay, all right, I'll do that. And they were absolutely 100% right. And I got to about day four, and I knew I did not want to be a teacher. <laughs> so, 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 so there were lots of different ideas, you know, around, you know, what I was going to do. And, and that was one of the things I tested. Uh, another thing I tested, actually, was that I... I got offered a big job at kind of like run the corporate affairs for quite a large company, um, which I had actually agreed to. And then I sat on the beach in my wife and I was on the beach in Cambodia. And I realized that I didn't want to do that. And actually, I had been at a party with my with Will, my brilliant co-founder and 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 we had talked about kind of, he had done a startup which actually he didn't didn't go brilliantly but um but he'd kind of been through the mixer of it and, and he wanted to go again. And I wanted to it was, you know, he was one of my greatest friends and it was like okay actually yeah I'm sorry I'm going to kind of go for it on with with this kind of idea it, you know the idea was to it, it was can you cause a fuss in the media and campaign on an issue that you care about that can also like force a you know like create a situation with a startup where it where it also grows when you don't necessarily have any money to spend on marketing etc Henry, you took a, a bit of time out when you were running LAM to go and work on the Vote Leave campaign. That's for our American listeners, the Vote Leave, uh, the European Union campaign that happened in 2016. What were your reflections on doing that? And also, coming back to that point about business and politics, you did quite a lot of focus group work. And I just thought, learning that from what is predominantly a political technique, how did that cross over into business? So I did. A, I kind of I took a like a little sabbatical from the business for a couple of months and and helped out on the on the vote leave campaign. And the main thing I was doing was was running the focus groups. So going around the country and you know talking to you know going to places I wouldn't normally go to and talking to people that I don't you know like um, of of all socioeconomic status and backgrounds. And I think the the thing that really struck out for me was how you know i have i have this thing about kind of I mean, it's not it's not my thing but like you know people talk about bubbles and i think it's very very easy for both in politics but also business and in fact in lots of things for people to get to stuck in their own little bubbles and thinking like what they think other people think you know that can be not just political parties and voters but also businesses and their customers like what do they, they kind of like have this in their brain they think they know what those people think about them and i'm afraid the truth is is that if you're in a bubble and all of us are you really are out of touch with what what people think um i think i'm, I'm one of the kind of classic examples from the the leave campaign was i remember when obama came over to the uk and 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 said that very strong thing where he said if you if you vote leave or you leave the EU, the eu you will be at the back of the queue for a for a trade deal 
uh, you know, at the time I saw that on TV and was like, gosh, that's bad for the Leave campaign. This is the leader of the free world. Uh, Obama's incredibly popular over in the UK. He's telling us basically, you know, you mustn't vote Leave. Classic American politician. He's probably the most popular politician in the UK by a distance. Exactly. And then it wasn't until I did the focus groups like the next night and I can't remember where I was, I think I was maybe in Barnsley, and I was talking to to normal people about it. And even Remain voters basically said, how dare that guy tell us, you know, he, they would literally go, I like Obama. I love Obama. I think Obama's great. But he's got no right to tell us what we should be doing. That's completely, not, that's not right. It's got nothing. So the key phrase that kept going was, is none of his business. And it was a classic example of like, you know, I have no doubt and I thought the exact same thing, that the Remain campaign must have been like high-fiving and like, yes, this is brilliant, we managed to do this. And the truth was, was that the real reaction of normal people was very negative. And if they had actually focus grouped it before they'd done it, they would have never have done it. And it actually kept coming up in later focus groups, even all the way up to the referendum, would be like, and, you know, Obama told us what to do, and, you know, what the hell is he doing? So that's the kind of political context of it, and political parties need to always be checking, like, talking to voters and making sure they understand voters of where they're really coming from and what they really care about rather than what they think they care about. And with businesses, the same in terms of like customers and their users and the absolute importance of speaking to the customers the whole time and making sure. So one of the classic things I see startups doing is they build products that they think the user wants to use <laughs> rather than what the user really wants to use. And you see like, you see this kind of thing where they build something and then no one uses it and they spent six months building it and you're like, well, if you'd actually spoken to the user or you know, shipped your product really quickly and early and then tested it with users, you would know that that wasn't going to work and you would be able to reiterate feedback. And so I think there's like a, a very important thing of making sure that business is really in touch with what normal people and their customers actually want them to do or think them think about their products or think about them or just business in general there's a great book called the mum test which i recommend to lots of people who are starting which is basically if you go to an idea with to your mum about i've got this digital app for a recipe book your mum will say oh yes it sounds lovely (laughs) but actually you should ask a load of questions that sort of try and provoke answers and and so on and it reminded me actually of focus groups quite similar like you don't want to give much away and so on um a quick plug on this that we are looking to do some customer research for jimmy's job so if anyone wants to go through that they can drop us a line at hello at jobs of the future dot dot co over the next few weeks We've talked about it a bit. You know, you sold Lamb to GoCo, GoCompare, um, more commonly known as. And um, just talk us through, like, you have an, an earn-out period. And we have a lot of entrepreneurs that listen to the show as well. And I think it'd be really interesting to kind of explain what an earn-out period is and, and how that works. Um, and then also kind of, like, talk us through what your, what your focus is on now and when your earn-out period finished as well. Yeah, so as a general rule with... Uh, when you sell a company, you, th- there is a kind of negotiation around the deal, and there is a there's a kind of like uh, a, certainly with with our, and I won't you know this is kind of very standard stuff, so I don't think I'm breaking any confidentiality things, or hopefully I'm not. Where there's kind of like there's a kind of portion of the deal which is money up front, and then there's portion of the deal which is money that you get at a later date, having worked in the business and hit certain targets, and that latter one is known as the earnout, and some of that might be in shares in the business, or it might just be another lump of cash, depending on what it is and you will go through a period of where you negotiate with the business what kind of things 
that you need to achieve over what period of time to be able to get access to that cash. You as an entrepreneur might want to negotiate a much bigger earn out because you back yourself that, you know, you take less money up front, but you back yourself to be able to hit lots of targets and earn lots more money in two years time. Or you might as an entrepreneur be like, I've sold my business. I don't want anything more to do with this. I'm going to I'm gonna take as much money up front as I can and, and, ha- and have no earn out or you might leave before the earn out, whatever it might be. But as a general rule, do, deals can be structured like that. Of course, they can be structured in lots of different ways. So my earn out was, um, was a year, was a, was a year, long and then I actually stayed a little bit longer over that and so I did in total about 18 months and left the business in March this year. And so seven months on what have you been filling your time with? Uh, <laughs> uh, well I, I've, I've got a three-year-old and a one-year-old so <laughs> uh, I've, been, I've, been, I've been doing a lot of, of, a lot of that stuff uh, and that's been absolutely amazing being able to like really hang out with them and also just kind of take a break from from it all I've been doing so I've I've I'm a uh, non-executive director at the cabinet office so I've that's a kind of part-time role so I've been doing some stuff helping out in government there but the main thing I've actually been doing is is I've been very very lucky to have a little bit of money and been able to do a little bit of angel investing into kind of early stage startups, um, uh, people that, you know, friends setting up businesses or people I really like uh, doing really interesting things. And I've been able to do a little bit of angel investing so far, which I'm really enjoying at the moment. And um, I'm keen to keep keep trying to do that. But, you know, um, we'll have to see how much, how long are I can afford to do this. <laughs> <laughs> do you have a favourite book that you'd recommend? In terms of like if you're doing startup stuff, there's two books that I would highly recommend. One is called Venture Deals by a guy called Brad Feld. And it's basically the tagline is no more about venture capital than your VC or your lawyer, I think I think it is. And in terms of like raising money and trying to understand the, the, the things around it, it's a it's a brilliant book and worth, and worth reading. Um, and then there's Elad Gill's High Growth Handbook, which is just like both those books are extremely practical. One of the things I can't stand about business books is kind of like, you know, someone writes a strategy book and you're like, oh, it's the strategy. And it's like, you don't, you know, A, you haven't really defined what strategy really is. You don't really know it. And it's just like, this book could be literally two pages long um, or an essay. Uh, but actually, so that Eli Gill is a brilliant angel investor, has written this high growth handbook and has also run startups. And it is a practical guide for like how to deal with your board, how to do certain things and grow and hire and it's really brilliant so those two in terms of beneficial business books in terms of books that are enjoyable to read i'm a big asimov fan uh and the the robot series and mm. uh foundation and all of that stuff so that that um i think is timeless stuff that people will be reading in many years excellent as a final question passing the the mic who would be particularly interesting for us to speak to so there's a, uh, a startup I invested in called Organize. Um, there's two founders, Nat and Bex, and they well, a they're brilliant, brilliant founders. But they what they're doing is they are they're building tools for workers inside businesses to be able to work together and communicate together in a way that like supports their rights in an extremely positive fashion. The shorthand is to say it's like a kind of trade union inside of kind of you know in in private businesses but i think it's a lot more than that in the sense that it's it's empowering people and empowering businesses to deal with their workforces in a in a sensible and way that's the to the benefit of everybody it's much it's not like um i think trade union is the wrong word and certainly not a word they would use i don't think so i i apologize for that but i think they are 
they're growing extremely fast um, with the kind of thing they've got over a million members now. I think businesses don't haven't always covered themselves in glory in treating their workforces in the right kind of way. And actually, would I rather government intervene and force them to do things? No, I'd rather it kind of came bottom up and actually was was done in a sensible way together. And I think organisers are at the, at the forefront of that. And they've also got some br- other brilliant investors involved and I'm super excited for what they're doing. Um, so, well, that sounds great. I mean, I agree. Like the, the state and the relationship between business and state is going to go through a big change as well as business and their employees. And... We're a long way from cracking that, like post COVID. <laughs> like it's not simpler. Yeah, and, and I think like one of the things that's upset me is like there's there's this backlash against, and I don't like the phrase capitalism, but like uh, this kind of like young people thinking like the truth is, and I think it's hard to argue against this, but it's in terms of like improving people's standards of living and quality of life. There is no better system. Like it has been shown, like wherever across the world, as you like free enterprise and free markets happen, people get dragged out of the poverty line. And that is a hugely beneficial thing with higher life expectancy, everything like that. But we're in this tor- horrible place where there's a danger that there's this kind of weird backlash against all of this. Mm. Um, just because, you know, some businesses do not behave appropriately, actually. And we need to deal with that and it needs to be dealt with. And I don't think it's like, wrong to deal with that by any means at all i'm certainly don't believe in that kind of like let them be they can do whatever they want no i completely disagree but we it it needs to be solved in some way otherwise there is a danger that we end up in a very bad place and i and that and that 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 worries me uh given how much progress has been made globally for so many people 100% 100% agree. And we can definitely explore that in a future episode. That's like <laughs> a real tease to kind of finish on. Henry, thanks so much for coming on Jimmy's Jobs of the Future. Thank you for having me. A reminder, we're currently doing some customer research around our fourth and fifth series. If you enjoy the show and would like to feedback with a 20-minute conversation, we'd massively appreciate it. Just drop us a line at hello at jobsofthefuture.co. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode in the third series of Jimmy's Jobs of the Future. Word of mouth is everything in the audio world. So if you enjoyed this episode, please rate us and send us to a friend. You can find us at Jimmy's Jobs on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram. You can also check out our website at www jobsofthefuture.co for our episode archive blog posts and more if you are a new listener do look through our previous episodes we've interviewed entrepreneurs disrupting industries from fintech to hospitality to modern engineering so whatever sector you're interested in there'll be something for you there if you'd like to get in touch please email us at hello at jobsofthefuture.co thanks to our producer leo danchak And thanks to George de Cleland for the artwork.